My name is Sudhanshu and welcome to the Swadeshi Videshi podcast where we try to find out more about India and explore more about Indians through an insider and outsider's perspective. Welcome back to another episode of Swadeshi Videshi, and this week my guest is Tara Krishnaswamy, who, among many things, including an activist and author, is the co-founder of Political Shakti and Citizens for Bengaluru. Tara, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. The pleasure is all mine, Sudanshu. Thank you for having having me, and hello, everyone. So, just as a background, I want to explain. Um, Tara and I met at a uh, at a law college uh, event in Bengaluru, uh, where we were at a panel to- uh, together talking about participation. And personally, I work a lot with youth participation and increasing that participation politically. And Tara does the same, but uh, with women. And I think. I wanted to really have this conversation and was excited about it because I think a lot of synergies align with the work we do. Um, even though our uh, demographics or our key audiences and who we're trying to increase that participation might differ a little, um, but I hope we can, through this you know conversation, talking and understanding, um, find a lot of commonalities and see what works and what doesn't. Um, so I'm really excited about this, Lara. <laughs> Me too. Um, so I want to I want to kind of start back um, because our audience is is a um, primarily the diaspora. Um, I try to break it down um, really briefly. I mean, what is your background? How did you you know found political shakti? Um, explain political shakti and also citizens for Bengaluru as well. Um, I'm actually a technologist by profession, and I uh, continue to work for a, a tech multinational here in Bangalore and. Um, uh, so that's my day job and my bread and butter. Um, about a decade ago, ago I started um, showing interest uh, because of association with a few friends of mine in um, in a little boutique political party, liberal political party, uh, that was uh, founded by some others to, um, you know, to make sure that there was uh, better representation, better governance, um, cleaner politics and that uh, reasonable people were able to have a platform to enter politics with uh, a goal of public service. Um, all of this sounds great in theory and very difficult to execute. So um, while we did manage to get a few people elected, the party didn't quite uh, grow in strength um, in order to either be the opposition or, or uh, the main party. Uh, nevertheless, it gave me a set of uh, fantastic experiences because with a smaller party, um, and I would encourage uh, a lot of people to try this, is to uh, hang out with uh, a political party. Actually, smaller ones are somewhat better, provided uh, you know they're actually serious about what they want to do, because you can uh, get your hands into many pies uh, that have to do with public service, whether you're interested in policy making, whether you're interested in politics, electoral politics itself, um, or the mechanics of uh, party building, or just, you know, um, establishing a, a base, a connection with the constituency, regardless of whether you want to work in the nonprofit sector or whether you want to be in active politics. Um, and this got me, this allowed me to get my hands dirty with things like communications, messaging, speech writing, um, organizing political events, mobilizing people, um, responding to issues. As a political party, you must respond to everything that happens, Um, taking a stand on things and and looking at the effect of those things. And of course, uh, elections and campaigning, which is a very exciting part of things. Um, Although that didn't go anywhere, I was associated with it for a good, uh, you know, six or so, five or six years. And then um, uh, you know, when that ended, I jumped into uh, civic work. Um, there was a large and monstrous uh, f- uh, flyover, steel flyover proposed by the 
government here in Karnataka for a whopping cost of 1,800 crores for 6.7 kilometers, which literally came to about 200 crores per kilometer, for which you can actually gold plate the flyover. So um, <laughs> a few of us got together and uh, mobilized the middle class, upper middle class of Bengaluru to, there was a lot of public anger. But a lot of the times, as you know, the anger, uh, you know, reflects in social media conversations and even uh, with real media, but doesn't quite translate into feet on the street, which means it doesn't convert to citizen action. And hence, there's no pressure on the government to change its policy. But in this case, we managed to mobilize about 10,000 people to get on the street. On a Sunday morning at 8 a.m., 10,000 people showed up on the street against the steel flyover to say steel flyover beta or no steel flyover in Canada. Um, and this sustained over a period of about four to five months, uh, October, 15, uh, October 16th, 2016, up until February when the project actually was canceled. So um, during that time, um, as an alternate, we, we ran campaigns. During those four to five months, we ran campaigns for public transport as an alternate, um, for uh, the suburban rail, for the public bus, and better pedestrian facilities and non-motorized transport. And all of this got, uh, you know, came together as Citizens for Bengaluru, which is a citizen's movement, not an NGO, but a citizen's movement. And that was sort of the beginning of my civic work, uh, which then in uh, 2018 led to the formation of a completely different citizens' movement called Shakti for um, increased political representation of women at the uppermost echelons of uh, decision-making and policy-making and law-making uh, for India, which is uh, the Lok Sabha. You know, well, two things um, before we kind of dissect into that. One, I think this is the first time I've ever heard someone uh, say boutique liberal party <laughs> in describing a <laughs> political party. <laughs> Aren't all liberal um, parties that way? I mean, in, in, uh, in reality, I don't think you have a truly liberal party that actually succeeds anywhere in the, in the world. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't know you came from the tech sector, but as soon as you said boutique, I was like, all right, uh, corporate sector. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I think it's interesting because at the end you put an emphasis on um, kind of segregating, you know, a citizens movement versus an NGO. And before we get into political shakti, uh, why that, you know, stress? An NGO, I think, is um, a more formal um, and and sort of structurally set um, initiative, right? You register it; it mm -hmm. has a shape and a form. It has a it has physical infrastructure. It has a hierarchy of, uh, you know, for operations. It has a bank account, um, and it and the concomitant um, repercussion is that you must deliver to certain things in a certain time frame. Not very different than the corporate world, except that it's not for profit for the most part. Um, in the sense that you have deadlines, you have projects, and there is the pressure just by mere existence that you must, um, you know, undertake projects and deliver to them and, you know, account for spend, seek funding. You know, there is a certain model of operation. I think it's also somewhat old-fashioned. Uh, in a sense, the, the criticism is that, uh, you know, in, in a sense, people have to stay poor so that NGOs can stay in business. And if this is a, a cynical point of view, I'm not saying I subscribe to it, but the theory, the, the sort of the spirit of it, if you will, is that you have to deliver to a certain deadline. You have to ask for funds, which means you have to spend them, which means you have to, uh, you know, create projects in order to spend them and sure there's enough problems in the world to solve. But um, a citizen's movement is a more sort of uh, modern, uh, way of looking at problem solving, I believe. Um, and the reason I say that is because uh, in a city like Bangalore, and I think this translates to many, many things, uh, recently Greta Thunberg has been, you know, working on the environment and people world over her have aligned with her regardless of shape and form of organization, regardless of hierarchy. There's a volunteer base, there's events that happen. People come together for a cause. That, I think, is the defining sort of sentence, people come together for a cause. And in order for people to come together for a cause, um, you know, they need to they need to have an emotional attachment to the cause, not the organization. Uh, 
So in Citizens for Bengaluru or in, in Shakti, if you will, um, a citizen's movement in the sense that people come together for what they believe in. If you look at women's representation, there's a whole host of people that believe in it across India and have come together for campaign after campaign to help push that. And indeed, we had the percentage of women increase in parliament, um, you know, from 11 odd percent to 14 odd percent uh, through sustained efforts from a lot of people, not just Chakti. And that's great news. Now, the set of people that came together may not agree on many other things, may not agree on how poverty should be alleviated, may not agree on, uh, you know, uh, political ideology. So the point is that people are capable of spontaneously coming together for a cause. And if you harness that, harness that regardless of a set hierarchy, regardless of a physical office. Um, and today we have the power of social media, which you didn't have in the old days, in fairness to the NGOs, which means we're able to instantly mobilize people for a cause. You're able to sustain that mobilization. You're able to reach out. The outreach doesn't need to happen by printing physical you know, posters and pamphlets. Um, there is a place for that, but there isn't always a need for that. So in a sense, a citizen's movement is a modern version and, uh, you know, it turns the concept of, uh, of uh, an NGO on its head because this is led by a volunteer base. This is led by a cause is at the center of, you know, the epicenter of the activity. You know, you say the need factor. I want to transition into directly political shakti. And for the diaspora to understand, late last year in December of 2019, the World Economic Forum released a gender gap report. And India had slipped four places um, from the 2018 ranking. And it now ranks uh, 112th globally in terms of gender gap. You know, this takes into account uh, economic participation, health, survival, and also political participation as well. You know, A, what are your thoughts on that? And B, do you think, you know, increasing political participation can also help? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm very glad that independent bodies continue to sort of take a dipstick of um, gender and, of course, other um, so social and societal issues and, you know, publish that for everyone to see because it gives us a gut check of if we are heading in the right direction. Um, yes, India has slipped woefully, and it's a matter of shame, I think. One of the things that, a couple of the things that have happened are, one, uh, there are countries within the last few years that have taken significant effort to increase uh, gender parity, if you will, right? Um, there are mm -hmm. countries like Rwanda uh, that have gone very far in women's political participation. There are countries like Bangladesh that have progressed, uh, you know, just from the perspective of per capita income, affordability, access, therefore, to, um, uh, you know, food security and, and health of the population. So in a sense, if you don't keep up uh, with the pace of progress, you're going to fall back. That is one side of the equation. And that's a bad thing, right? Um, the second side of the equation is also that India hasn't been doing very well economically in the past few years. And uh, when that happens anywhere in the world, not just specific to India, women are the first to suffer. The most vulnerable are the first to suffer, I must say, the poorest and the most vulnerable. And of course, women are the permanent third world. They are the, they are the poorest of the poor. You take any um, uh, sort of, you dissect the poor in any way. You take any cross-section of the poor, be it by religion, be it by caste, and or even be it by economic strata, and you will see the women that the women are the poorest amongst that section. They own the least amount of wealth. Uh, they possess the least access to money and agency, even in decision making, even for the uh, wealthy women. So um, women have uh, exited the labor force um, because of this economic. Um, situation where we haven't done so well. Uh, women's labor participation has actually fallen from uh, 25 odd percent to about 15 odd percent in the urban areas and correspondingly in the rural areas as well, which means their access to everything from finances to health to, um, you know, just agency and decision making has tremendously fallen. Um, and as far as political participation per se goes, India has a three tiered uh, political system. There are local governments, both at the rural and urban level, uh, right, panchayats, 
um, mm-hmm. zilla panchayats and district level governments and then at the urban level you have corporations municipalities and then you have the second tier of governance which is the state governments and then the uppermost tier of governance which is the central government and the parliaments and if you look at the lowest tier of governance thanks to the uh, 73rd 74th amendment that came about in 1993 under rajiv gandhi you see that there was a 33% reservation for women in all local governments and that has transformed local governance in india if you look at uh, why the gender standing of uh, india has dropped um, it's a because in the past few years other countries have made some significant progress if you look at countries like um, rwanda they've actually done a lot to increase women's political participation uh, bangladesh for instance has done better economically than ever before therefore putting more money in everyone's hands including women's hands uh whereas if you look at india a couple of things have happened economically we haven't done as well as before and that's evidenced by the labor force participation rate of women which has dropped significantly usually when a country uh stagnates or goes uh you know does less than well economically um the first set of people to be affected are uh, the most vulnerable and the poorest people they are the ones that uh lose jobs uh, at, at the very bottom of the pyramid and that includes women women actually of all sectors are the first ones um to quit the job part time job jobs get scarce women are often employed in the part time uh, you know space and many of them are entrepreneurs uh you know doing small uh, shops or you know little uh, small trades from their homes and these sort of things start to dry up when the economy doesn't do as well and you can see that the women's labor force participation rate has dropped significantly from uh, about 25% to about 15% in urban areas and equivalently in rural areas so that on the economic side of things when uh, women are uh, sort of affected that affects their health that affects their access to food that affects their you know purchasing power um, and even though um, it, you know from an education standpoint india is doing increasingly better um this has affected all other metrics and then that brings us to political participation where you have three tiers of governance in india and in the lowermost tier of local government uh, which is the panchayats the zilla panchayats and the district governments in uh, the rural areas and the municipalities and the corporations in the urban areas you have between 33 and 50% reservation since 1993 uh which was when the 73rd 74th amendments were passed by uh the rajiv gandhi government as a result of that women have entered uh the decision making space for the local governments um in a significant fashion um uh, you know to uh, sort of a critical mass level if you will which means that the composition of the panchayats have changed you don't just have one woman whose voice is may or may not be heard and is often lost or shushed but you have a significant number of women who are you know prioritizing the budget the devolutions towards things that matter to all of the population including the neglected 50% for instance girls toilets in schools for instance street lights um you know that make the roads and public spaces safer for women um and there's consultations about budgets and about governance that starts to include women or women alone consultations in rural areas where women still hesitate to come out into meetings that are you know full of men so this has sort of changed the face of uh, governance at the local body level uh, in fact in my own experience here in bengaluru we had a female mayor ganga binke who by all arguments was one of the best mayors bengaluru has ever seen um she brought in ward committees empowering uh, you know uh, which is part of the constitutional amendment and yet no city in india has had it for the past 25 years she uh, passed an order constituting ward committees which allows citizens to participate in local governance as per the law um she also banned plastic in bengaluru before it was banned in other cities in india so she did some uh, amazing things and it's an example of how local government has changed due to the participation of women but the minute you leave the ambit of local governance where reservation guarantees women's participation either move to the state governments the assemblies or the parliament at the central level women's participation drops to between 10 to 14% um and even if you what? look at 14% 10 to 10 to 14%, 10 to 14% wow 
And even if you look at the Rajya Sabha, the upper house, which is nominated and not even elected, which means that it is entirely under the control of the political parties, which have lakhs of women members um, and, you know, hundreds of women leaders, you don't even have 10% of women in, in the Rajya Sabha, which is, you know, it's a really a strong testament to how patriarchal the political establishment is. So, you know, uh, the reason it has dropped, gender parity has dropped in India is because we, uh, apart from, say, education and the, the Lok Sabha itself, we, uh, we have dropped along all other axes, uh, especially the economic axis, which dictates most of the other things, uh, you know, like health, access to food, purchasing power. And we have also dropped from a uh, political representation standpoint other than in local government. You know, um, before we began this conversation, I did say that I wanted this to be a, a comparative, comparative discussion um, and kind of find synergies of, of the work that I am doing um, and the work that you're doing. So, you know, when I get asked a lot, you know, uh, the question of why India needs more youth political representation, um, I, I like to discuss a, a lot about how India's young um, or India's young need to be in consideration for, for law and policy and just simply representation. Uh, would you argue the same? And, and that is the effect that you're arguing that, you know, to basically uh, get rid of these disparities in, in, in all these multitudes of, of levels, uh, you need more representation directly of women in all levels of, uh, of politics. Yeah, I mean, you can argue this in many different ways, but uh, the primary argument is that there is no argument uh, because India is a representative democracy, which means the elected representatives, as the word indicates, are supposed to represent the people. And uh, when, you don't, when you have a population that has uh, a significant percentage of, of youth in the country, what, somewhat like 40% of the people are under 40 years old? No, oh, no, no, no. 650 million people below the age of 30. So that's half the population. Um, more than half, yeah. <laughs> more than half. And then, you know, under 40 would be uh, uh, maybe 70, around 70, 75, 70%, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, which means that the aspirations and the experiences, the lived experiences, are not being reflected in Parliament because Parliament, on the other hand, has you know, close to 80% of the people above the age of 40, right? 90% of the people above the age of 40. Mm -hmm. And 90%, 85% of the people are male whose experiences simply don't reflect the lived experiences of women. In the last uh, session, for example, they discussed surrogacy. Um, the previous mm -hmm. session, when they discussed the GST, they levied an unheard of 16% tax on sanitary napkins. Um, uh, you know, and almost an all-male parliament did that before they brought that down um, to zero. And, you know, the fact that that was even the case for a whole year is shocking because um, they don't even have the right body parts to have that discussion. Uh, and that up. what's even more shocking, I'm sorry to butt in, but quite like literally two days ago, uh, when obviously India is under a lockdown, but sanitary napkin factories were not in essential services and right. were therefore closed. Exactly. And even Sorry, I just, there is I, a, I just think that's shocking. It's, it's shocking. And today there is a shortage of sanitary products in the market. You, you're absolutely right. Um, and this is what happens when you have an all-male decision, all-old male decision, an all-white male or an all-rich male which is the problem with India's parliament today, is that 90% of India's parliament is old, white, upper caste, rich people. And it is only because of reservation that you have uh, the representation of uh, even scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. So if the lived experiences of the people aren't reflected in parliament, they aren't reflected in laws and policy making. So on the one hand, we talk about how, um, you know, there are egregious errors when you don't hear a woman's a women's voices or young people's voices when it comes to, say, the tax on sanitary napkins or surrogacy, or, you know, you discuss instant triple talaq with, with not one single female Muslim in the Lok Sabha, right, when you're discussing and passing that law. So um, it's kind of weird. It's like a whole bunch of white people sitting around and saying, hmm, what shall we do? That's the right thing for black people, right? That's just a very... Um, 
odd way to, to not consult, to not have the lived experiences of the people that are actually going to be most impacted by the policy. But that's just one side of the equation. Ask yourself if that's the case for existing policies that are being discussed. What is it that is, you know, that they are blind to, that, are, that they don't even realize that is not on the table? And the best example of that is what happened with the recent Delhi elections where women overwhelmingly voted for up. There is a good, you know, 4 to 15 percent difference um, in percent point difference in the women that, in women electorate voting for up based on constituencies, depending on the constituency versus men. Women of all castes, all religions, uh, exceedingly voted for, for up. And now, keep that aside and look at UP's campaign itself. UP didn't campaign to women. They campaigned on water. Mm -hmm. They campaigned on electricity. They campaigned on better education. They campaigned on better health care. They did not, if you look at their campaign messaging, they didn't tailor these to women. These were just, hey, I reduced your electricity bills. Hey, you got, you know, better quality uh, of services. Hey, you got, you know, um, uh, lifeline water free. Hey, our schools quality improved. These are generic messages, and yet women came and voted for them, which goes to say that these infrastructural needs are very much quote women's issues. And the fact that 70 years of you know governance in Delhi has neglected basic things like electricity and water and schools and healthcare tells you what can happen if women enter the parliament, women enter the assemblies. You can have a significant change in where emphasis is laid, in what policies are made. So I think that that's the parallel to young people as well, is the aspirations, the lived experiences, and just the nature of politics is that it's representative in a democracy. And when you don't have the right people at the table, you cannot possibly have the right outcome. And then, you know, there's just the, the sheer waste of power. You have 60% mm -hmm. of the people under 40 or uh, under 30, and you have, uh, you know, 50% of the population, that, uh, which are women, that's just sitting around and waiting for the other, you know, 20, 30, 30% to, 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 to have a bulb glow, right? Why are you <laughs> to catch up? that talent? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, right. just leaving it. Now, on, because we are, you know, drawing parallels, I, I'm obviously uh, drawn to drawing a parallel <laughs> Um, with the United States. And it's it's interesting that you were equating the Delhi elections about how campaigning wasn't necessarily done for, let's say, specifically women or women rights, etc. Um, but in fact, women had the strongest, um, you know, outcome. That being said, like in the United States, the especially, uh, I mean, pre 2016, but even post 2016 with Hillary Clinton, there's been this ongoing discussion of breaking that glass ceiling, right? And the glass ceiling is obviously defined by a uh, a woman coming and, and contesting and, and winning as the president um, of the United States. That glass ceiling, if we take it by that definition, has been broken um, in India uh, much long before. And we see that on a from a South Asian perspective that women have been at the head of um, government, maybe not head of state, but head of government, um, and in India, Pratibha Patel, head of state as well, uh, many times. So what would we say the glass ceiling for India would be? Is there a glass ceiling um, within India's uh, political contest for women? That's a great question. And, and similarly, you've had a relatively younger uh, sort of Rajiv Gandhi uh, lead um, India mm -hmm. as well. Um, but that's the point. The one-off uh, Rajiv Gandhi's or, you know, Jailalitas or Mamta Banerjee's as strong and as uh, grassroots politicians as both Jalalita and Mamata Banerjee are and were, um, don't define the glass ceiling in India. Um, mm -hmm. Glass ceiling, I believe, whether it is young people or whether, whether it is women or whether it is Muslims or whether it is, uh, you know, any other uh, slice of population, it is uh, a representation that is at critical mass. If women are 50% mm -hmm. of the population, then you must at least have a critical mass, a third to, of course, ideally 50% or more of women in decision-making. Same goes for young people or any other demographic. The reason that critical mass is important is, uh, you know, is something that we are all very uh, innately and simply aware of uh, in our own lives, which is that as a, 
as a single guy, if you go into a room full of women discussing something, um, it's, it, it takes you a while to speak up. Um, girls, uh, girl students in classes that are uh, full of boys, if there's 10 girls and 100 boys, they have a hard, much harder time speaking up. And this, the United States actually understands very well in, in STEM education. And, you know, if you're a single African-American kid in a, you know, in a classroom full of white kids, then the issues that discuss, uh, get discussed, the viewpoints and the perspectives that come out are so alien to your own lived experiences, it becomes difficult for you to voice them. If I were in parliament at the time that the GFC was being discussed, and the parliament at that time had only 11% women, I would find it exceedingly difficult, the 55 odd or 60 odd women versus, uh, you know, 500, and four, 500 men in parliament to raise my voice and say, I could try, but first I should get a chance and I should be heard. And often, uh, you know, that perspective is drowned out amongst the majority so the glass ceiling is always, and I think even in the U.S., while they symbolically talk of the glass ceiling of being a, a woman winning the presidential election, the glass ceiling really is a critical mass uh, representation of women in, in uh, you know, in the in their senates and in their congresses. You have ridiculous laws uh, being passed in the U.S. around, you know, a minor who is raped cannot get doesn't have access to to abortion, and uh, you know, they, the, the fact that women's lives and women's um, agencies over their own bodies, but women's lives, first of all, um, can be decided not by them, itself is shocking in this day and age. And that's what's happening. And that cannot change unless there's a critical mass of women, not just in the legislative. And that's all we're talking about here, Sudhanshi, is the legislative. The, the judiciary is even more pathetic in India. Um, mm. You know, the executive is, is not is not great either, has an even smaller representation of women. So I think the, the unless all of that changes, access to justice, access to law, access to um, the media, and access to the voices being heard is not going to change. I want to pivot towards a little bit of the reforms and, and what's been done. So you briefly touched upon the 73rd and 74th Amendment. Um, and for those who don't know, basically there are reservations in India where, um, let's say, at the local level specifically, um, and also at a um, national level for different uh, members of the community who belong from different castes um, to contest, and they have what's called a reserved seat. Uh, and the same thing goes for at a local level. Um, but when it comes to uh, women specifically, only at, as uh, Thara was explaining, at a local level are there reserved, and it is 50%, correct? Or 33%? Well, some states have 33%. Some states have 50%. Okay. So the it depends on the states. Yeah. Right. And some states. Is the law. Yeah. Okay. And then um, what are some states that have done 50%, if I may ask? Many states. My own state of Karnataka has 50%. Uh, okay. West Bengal has 50%. Many states have 50%. So in, in basically, there are, out of the number of total seats that are available at a Sarpanch, Panch, Jilaparishad level, 50% or 33% will um, be given to women. Now, this concept I think people know of or heard of, have heard about, but obviously there are problems within this as well. And one thing is called uh, the concept of Sarpanch Pati. And I personally have experienced this within my documentary work on the Panchayati system. So, um, you know, I want to ask, Obviously, not just your thoughts on this, um, but you know, what are some reforms that that we can kind of create to make sure that that concept doesn't happen? And that being said, um, there are completely the polar opposites of examples where women truly are leading at the front line. Um, one example is from you know my own home state of Haryana in the uh, Mirat region, where women truly have come out and have transformed their region, their village, their uh, small panchayat. Uh, in, in multitudes of way, just because they had that reservation? Yeah, it's a great question and very often asked, uh, uh, you know, by uh, people that are new to the notion of uh, women's representation. That's the most mm -hmm. intuitive question that comes to mind. So let's back up and start, uh, you know, at the very, with the very fundamentals. Right? What's the goal of a, a, a representative re a Republican democracy in the state? The goal is to 
create a society where uh, people are supreme, where uh, their needs are met, the, the people that they elect represent them adequately, um, and therefore, you know, maintain social harmony. That's sort of the, the, the end goal. And to arrive at that end goal, uh, we need to have everybody in society progress. We cannot leave behind a segmented society and arrive at that end goal, which is why many governments world over, uh, democratic governments, uh, democratic republic societies, make sure that there are uh, schemes that help um, those that are being left behind move forward. The scheme may be as simple as providing loans at lower interest rates so that people who have less access to capital, people who are unable to borrow, have, uh, you know, are now sort of equitably able to get access to capital so that you can, they, they can pull themselves up or pull themselves out of poverty, if you will. There are many such and reservation is one scheme and it's debatable, right? Is that the best way to do things? No. In the case of political representation, the ideal way to do things is for political parties to do the right thing. Why do you exist as a political party? To represent people. So when I elect a man, I am expecting him to represent everybody. But the nature of our lives is that, the, is that what I experience is not the same as what you experience. If I were a fisherwoman of quote lower caste, my lived experiences are very different than me, Tara Krishnaswamy, right? I don't have the same access mm -hmm. to education. I don't have the same facilities. I don't have a library. I don't, ha I don't come necessarily from an educated family. So who can now pull up the other fisherwomen and fishermen even? She is better able to represent that segment of population than I am. So... The, in the ideal case, political parties should be seeking to field candidates from all segments of population. So if I'm a party, that I'm a state party, and my state happens to be, um, you know, uh, uh, an inland state like Haryana without a, you know, without a coast, then I don't have fish, mm -hmm. fishermen and fishermen. But I have farmers. I have, uh, you know, business sector. I have traders. I have mechanics. I have uneducated people. I have, you know, people that are daily wages and construction workers. I have people that are migrants, right? I have, uh, of course, I have women, I have young people, and I have people of all castes and communities. If I'm a party with lakhs and lakhs of members, I should have membership from all the demographics, across the demographic, and I should be able to select and offer candidates from across the demographic because I can tell you with certainty that I cannot represent the Fisher people. I don't have an understanding of their lived experiences. I, I don't know what cobblers do, right? That I can try to understand it, but who can represent be them better are the cobblers themselves. So, mm -hmm. but in, in politics today in India, that is simply not happening. If you look at the overwhelming majority of the candidates that they offer, it doesn't represent the cross-section of the population. India, for example, has about 15% Muslim population. You have less than 4% Muslims in parliament. So if you want laws reforming, reforming their lives, okay, other than the fact that you can impose certain laws on a segment of population, it is not discussed by them. It is not therefore accepted by them. The perspective of what really happens in their lives doesn't come through. They're not the ones that are debating it in parliament. So when you, the, the real issue, the crux of the problem squarely lies with political parties, not the people. The reason I say that is if you look at the 17 Lok Sabha elections that have happened since 1962, in every single one of those 17 elections, women have been elected to parliament at a greater rate than men. What does that mean? That means that for every 100 candidates of men and women, male and female fielded, whether they are from parties, whether they are independent, the winning rate of women, winning percentage of women has been moderately to significantly higher than winning percentage of men in every single election. Not in the majority of elections, not in some of the elections, every single election, including the last one. Women won at 6.4%, women won at 10.8%, men won at 6.4%. Previous election, women won at 9% plus, men won at 6%. Any given election, the very first election, women won at 48% rate, men won at 30%. So the fact is that the electorate or the voters 
are overwhelmingly happy to elect women. They want more women to represent them. And this is visible in survey after survey. And this is visible in electoral results, as I just mentioned. So it, while the population is patriarchal, the political parties are not reflective of the population in that they are even more patriarchal and represent only a very small sliver of the population. The people that end up getting tickets to contest are the ones that are extremely rich, can throw crores of money, which means they're extremely mm -hmm. male, and which means they are very much older than the average age of the population. As a result, you don't even have women and young people standing as candidates. Where is the question of them entering the parliament? You don't even give them a chance where is the question of them getting elected and getting winning uh, and winning? This is a great segue actually to one reform that you personally took on during the 2019 elections and I really want to focus on this as well. Um, you were able to convince one party but also two parties to make sure that they had um, a parity between the uh, women candidates that they that they nominated right um, according to their men as well. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that Shakti alone did it. The the overall public pressure that was built by Shakti and many other groups that were working on this and the media pressure that was built uh, on women's representation in Lok Sabha mm -hmm. during the 17th Lok Sabha campaigns, I think, um, helped push that to happen. We must remember that uh, for the first time, I believe, in the history of India, women's representation was a focal point of the entire 17th Lok Sabha campaign, which in itself is a humongous achievement, right? When they mm -hmm. talk about, uh, when media, when there is media talk about election campaigns, there is talk about leaders, there is talk about individuals, there is talk about money, there is talk about corruption, there is talk about, you know, the issues in the campaign, uh, the manifestos, the individuals standing for election. Seldom is there talk about how many women are being fielded? Who are these women? And, you know, are these women going to make it into parliament? What are the issues these women have? The fact that women became and, and women's representation became sort of a focal point of fulcrum in this campaign, both for the media and for political parties, I think is, some, is, is one of the things that Shakti is very proud about. Um, and the BJD in Orissa and... Uh, the TMC, uh, Mamta Banerjee's party in West Bengal, uh, both gave between 33 and about 42% tickets to women, uh, respectively, which is fantastic, more than, uh, more than ever before. And that certainly helped increase the number of women that entered parliament. And we have a hitherto un, uh, you know, achieved uh, uh, 78 women out of 543 in parliament. Um, the campaigns, as I said, relating to the earlier question that we ran, was to put pressure on political parties to field more women, right? So reservation isn't always the, the, the answer, but in India, it ends up becoming the answer because parties are so intransigent and absolutely, in some sense, rogue entities, right? They refuse to do the job that they signed up to do. To, do. to register a political party in India, you have to go to the election commission and commit to the constitution and the democratic principles of a representative republic, which means you're actually giving and writing an affidavit saying that I will represent the people, and yet you don't even bother to offer women or young people as candidates. So what we did was to run a series of pan-India campaigns where volunteers you know, came together to put pressure on political parties to field more women candidates. One of the flagship campaigns that we ran was uh, to call the MPs. During the winter session of the parliament in 2018, uh, and Shakti was formed just prior to that, uh, December was the winter session, we uh, mobilized people from across India, and this is both men and women, and this includes farmers, and by farmers I mean women, uh, this includes sex workers, this includes um, you know abandoned women, this includes IT professionals, lawyers, it includes tribals, um, it includes people of all castes and communities, people like you and me from cities and people from rural areas that participated in a call campaign. For the first time in the history of India again, we called every single sitting member of parliament in the Lok Sabha during the parliament session at the end of the day when the parliament ended. Um, the reason we did that was 
the idea was to call them simultaneously, uh, all of them, as many of them as possible. Uh, so each of us made many, many calls and ask them um, and tell them, look, you're representing me, uh, you're representing us, and we want more women in parliament. Will you play, please uh, raise this with your parties and raise this in parliament that more women need to be fielded as candidates? And uh, th this, was, this had an amazing outcome in that the next morning in parliament, many of these MPs realized that they had all received multiple calls. You have to remember that members of parliament actually uh, are elected to make laws for the entire country. So mm -hmm. a member of parliament from a constituency in Haryana doesn't only represent you as a Haryanvi. He represents, he or she represents me too uh, as someone from Karnataka because the laws they make apply to all of us. So I'm mm -hmm. very well allowed to call uh, an MP from, you know, Rotak, right? So. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, several hundred of us uh, called the MPs simultaneously. And the next day, close to 100 MPs, opposition MPs, even the BJP MPs said they would raise it, right? Um, but uh, MPs from uh, all the state parties, many of the state parties, including the BJP MPs, uh, tried to raise it in parliament the next day, but they were not allowed to speak. Many of them went, the opposition went into the well of the parliament and insisted on raising it. Uh, but the point is that our voice was heard in Parliament because we reached out and asked for it to be heard in Parliament. Um, this uh, has, a, has a fantastic effect um, in many ways. One is it taught a lot of people, the hundreds of volunteers that participated, hey, you're allowed to talk to your MP and you're allowed to talk to any MP. You're allowed to communicate your demand to them and, you know, they may actually listen to it and respond. And they may also raise it in Parliament. Well, you may not get the end result that you want exactly, but it gets the ball rolling. It's the first step. The other thing that we did was we wrote letters to all the party heads. We met as many party heads as possible, party chiefs. And this is what you're referring to, um, uh, you know, to, to ask them to provide uh, more seats to women as they, they, they call it tickets, right? Um, a candidate gets a ticket to stand in an election. And typically, the number of tickets that a political party gives in India to women is about 8%. Every single year, last year, uh, for the Lok Sabha elections, parties like BJP and Congress gave barely 8% tickets to women, 6% tickets to women, which means 94% of their candidates are men. We beseeched all the parties, even the state units of the parties, including the BJDs and the TMCs, the BJPs, the Congress, the state parties as well, the DMKs, to give more tickets to women. We also ran a campaign uh, putting pressure on the Election Commission on Women's Day, saying the Election Commission shouldn't accept nominations that are all male. Uh, if a party is uh, nominating 94% men, 90% men, 80% men, why isn't the Election Commission chastising them, pushing them back, uh, you know, um, uh, warning them that they must nominate women in equal numbers? So we tried to apply pressure on all of the concerned institutions that are associated with electoral politics, be it the political parties, be it the, you know, the leaders of the parties, uh, be it the election commission, uh, the, the representatives themselves, the, the MPs, we also call the MLAs of the state parties. So, and of course, through media. So that sort of... Uh, changes the angle from saying reservation is the only answer to say the, mm -hmm. the ideal answer is that the political party field um, candidates that genuinely reflect the demographic of the country. And then it's up to the people mm -hmm. to choose. And because so that is the not onus happening, on the political parties. put the onus on the party. In fact, many countries like South Africa, um, Australia, many countries, political parties have voluntarily taken quotas to make sure that their long lists and short lists of candidates have adequate women in them, have adequate young people, have adequate minorities represented. It is a, it's a matter of self-regulation and discipline. This is like making sure that everybody in your family has opportunities. Everybody in your, in your, uh, you know, residential community has reasonable access to its resources. If you don't do that mm -hmm. check, this is why I call them rogue, that, you know, they, they are simply not self-regulating and they are above 
all regulations. The election commission doesn't have power over them in India. The election commission can only warn them or advise them. It cannot stop them from contesting, even if they nominated 100% men. If 100% of the men they nominated were exactly the same caste, were from one family, for example, the election commission can do nothing about it. Hmm. So we hmm. have a problem because, uh, I think squarely because of political parties, and this is why I gave the Rajasabha example early on, to say, here is an example where you remove, it's a controlled experiment, you remove all other factors out of that experiment. Forget the people and whether they elect women. Yeah, forget yeah. the fact that women don't, uh, don't have as much access to money to run, right? Forget all that. It's entirely in your hands and it's your guys that are electing the women. So, and you have lacks of members. They come out and brag about, you know, having a crore of women members. Uh, and this is true from the left end of the spectrum to the right end of the spectrum. Nobody uh, puts up women candidates into the Rajya Sabha. I kind of want to now pivot um, towards the future. And the general elections are, are now four years away, four and a half years away. Um, I know that the goal will be to increase, you know, the 78 um, women uh, Lok Sabha members to something much greater or equal to the men. Um, but until then, until the general elections, what is, you know, political Shakti and what are you doing um, in different levels to increase that political participation? Um, couple of, uh, a couple of the, uh, let me back up. The democracy is a rule by numbers, right? We know that um, you get the majority of the vote, you win, win, but even before you hit the ballot box, um, you see a lot of people demand something, you're much more likely to comply as a politician. That's how politics in a democracy works. And I go back to the example of the steel flyover, 10,000 people come on the street, it gets canceled. If 100 people come on the street, it won't get canceled. Um, and of mm -hmm. course they sustain. So uh, the idea is to keep the pressure on the system, keep this as a topic of conversation um, in the media, uh, within the, uh, within the uh, sort of the view of the political parties, to keep the pressure up on, um, you know, women's representation and whether they are, now the Rajya Sabha elections were going on and one of the things we had planned is to run a campaign, the Rajya Sabha elections were due at the end of March, to run a campaign for that starting March 1st because these are nominations, right? Um, but unfortunately, you know, uh, various other events, uh, including the COVID-19, and prior to that, the uh, the controversial Citizenship Amendment Act and NRC that were passed in India, uh, sort of subsumed the activity. Um, and starting March 1st, uh, you know, and the lockdown and everything, we haven't uh, been able to do that for the Rajya Sabha. But the idea is to keep the pressure on for uh, on both the political parties and the media to keep this as a point of conversation. And there is many things that can be done towards that, right? Um, one is, of course, writing uh, about it. Many people can write about it, uh, talking about it. Um, you don't always have to run campaigns. But there are so many other initiatives that are happening. I'm part of a couple of initiatives myself. Um, we have a, uh, an Indian School of Democracy that I'm on the board of that runs uh, programs that enable young people, uh, including women, they wanna, we wanna make sure that there's adequate representation of women and some of these programs are exclusively for women who want to become politicians. Uh, you know, how do you contest in an electoral democracy? How do you run campaigns? How do you generate funds? Um, how do you make policy? How do you mobilize and build a base in your constituency? So there are, um, in this gap, in this hiatus of about four years, there are other ways in which you can reach out to the public themselves, the aspiring candidates, uh, to create, to build a momentum around the issue of women's representation uh, through capacity building, through skills and training, through awareness, through, of course, conversations, writing, and running campaigns, and talking to political parties as well. You know, I just want to, because you're talking about the Indian School of Democracy, but I do think that the work that we're doing have, have so many intersections because uh, with Young India Foundation, we've uh, had 15 candidates contest, out of which 12 candidates have been women. 
Um, and it's interesting because it, we weren't even trying to select in that way women, right? We were just trying to find yeah. young candidates who we thought were the best prepared. And it just happened to be that these young women were the most genuine. Uh, they were yeah. the most committed. And it wasn't yeah. the typical, oh, netagiri karenge, right? It was genuine right. commitment to, to resolve. And right. the the crazy thing is, is out of the 15 people, we've had six candidates that won. And out of the six that won, four of them were women. Now you can say the majority Fantastic. of them were women. That's why. But just the fact that, and campaigns are tougher, uh, without yes. a doubt, I would say. Yes. Uh, when it comes to that, I've personally experienced. But it's just amazing that we've had so many genuine young women come out um, and fight with their family and fight with, you know, the social structures that are in place to make sure that their voice is heard, but also that they're being a figurehead for their, you know, community members and, and the women around them. And that's been yeah. like so rewarding to see. And it's interesting that, and, and I bring this up because, you know, we haven't tried, for example, we aren't an organization that is selectively looking for women, young women to contest, but it just happens to be in your argument of let the electorate decide. It just happens to be that young women are exponentially better than the candidates we've had that have been men. So a couple of so comments I, I'd, I'd like to make, uh, you bring up a very interesting point, which is that I go back to this often in democratic republics, because the goal of a democratic republic is to serve uh, and make sure that the society um, is able to progress, that, you know, everyone gets a reasonable deal and no one is left behind. When you make policies, when you take positions that help the most vulnerable, the least privileged, you end up benefiting everyone. And when you take policies and positions that, you know, specifically benefit the best, the, the, the most ahead in society, then you benefit no one at all. And to your point, when you, when you try to get representation for young people, you end up also benefiting women. And when we try to get representation for women, a lot of the women that are coming out are the women of today's generation, the young women, right? Uh, versus when you try to just say that, you know, I'm going to build a generic political party, you, without that goal in mind, without saying I want to go after the most underrepresented, the most backward politically, right, would be the young people of today and the women of today. When you don't have that explicit goal, then you're not making policies and programs and you're not, you know, making your party rules with that in mind then you end up with a whole bunch of candidates and a whole bunch of winners that are just old, rich, upper-caste men. That's what's happening. And to your point about their you know, skill and um, you know, competence, you had even asked an earlier question about the Sarpanchpati that I didn't have a chance to get to. I want to make a quick comment in that regard. To impersonate a public officer in India is a crime, is a criminal offense, which is you know, a jailable offense. Uh, imagine if I went and sat in the seat of a district collector right? Um, and yet in India, routinely, all over in local governments, like you said, you have uh, the husband, father-in-law, brother type character who assumes the role of the duly elected woman. And this is not only a usurpation of a public office, which is a criminal offense, uh, it also uh, is a huge disservice to the people because that is not only elected. Unfortunately, the law and order, the police uh, do not act on this, uh, which they should, um, and, you know, simply punish the offenders, and this will go away. And to the other point, thankfully, um, and more practically and pragmatically, you cannot have these impersonators enter the state assemblies or the parliament. That is physically impossible, because if you're elected from the far reaches of, you know, say, Tamil Nadu or Manipur, uh, you're not, uh, you know, in, from some district, you're not you know, go, going to the capital and entering the state assembly and sitting in place of your wife or, uh, you know, to the parliament and uh, sitting in place of your sister or, or daughter or whoever. So, um, A, it is self-limiting. This kind of abuse is only possible in, in local governance. Uh, so we don't need to worry about it at scale. But it is still a serious problem and uh, it is a law and order problem. It's, it's a violation that doesn't get addressed. You know, I often like to say people look at competence only when it comes to women. You have numerous uh, male elected representatives 
today uh, whose competence is a huge question and we know that we see it day in and day out in fact look around india right uh, so much is um, undone so much is uh, a sheer waste and 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 so much has been compromised on you cannot possibly say that 70 years of male dominated governance um, is all good for india but the more important thing is most of the men in power today including the ruling party of the bjp if you look at the top 25 people whose photos they have on the website right they all have relatives in politics their fathers mothers brothers uh, sisters you know family has been in politics india's businesses are our families india's politics are families but we seem to put a spotlight on it only when it comes to women the fact is the men in politics are also somebody's brother or somebody's nephew um the tickets are also given that way to men and and most tickets are given to men and uh, they are also influenced by what their fathers and nephews say um and their competence is hugely in question well dara thank you so much for for just discussing um this and and i've learned so much um you know i want to end on a on a personal anecdote and going off of just the sarpanch pati bit um in 2015 I was shooting a documentary in Haryana and the panchayat elections were going on and I was doing that for them so we went to a uh, a village um where I trailed a supposed candidate for six and a half hours we went to the voters we went to you know the local bunches that were supporting the sarpanch uh we went to the candidate themselves I interviewed the supposed candidate again six and a half hours of of watching their campaign and literally at the end when and the only reason we found out that this individual wasn't the actual candidate was because when the dummy EVMs arrived I couldn't find his name I remember specifically going uh, Jarnail Singh ka hai because I saw their uh symbol obviously and I said Jarnail Singh ka hai and they're like Well, you know, and and he pointed out, and he's like, right here on the four, fourth or fifth or whatever it was, and I was like, I know my Hindi is 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 bad, but I can still read Devanagari, right? <laughs> and then six and a half hours later, yeah, it all came together that it was actually the daughter-in-law that was contesting, um, but everyone, including the voters, the elected officials that were already there, the candidate themselves, and the daughter-in-law, were convinced that this. election was actually on and it was sadly on this individual this uh you know patriarch's name yeah yes and i think that just goes to show that how embedded and clueless we can be in these election processes and you know i think that was that was shameful on my end on everyone's part because it wasn't just you know where we think a one way forceful no everyone was just complicit in this but also i think uh that goes to show that everyone now in the political system is complicit um and the reason why there is a lack of of women that are participating but also young people um and until we are all mindful of that um we won't have that that equity that we that we seek for um sudanshu so i'd like to uh leave with a closing comment um yes which is that uh even more important than the fact that women or young people for that matter should have a voice uh in the uh, decision making and in running the country is that when women are the elected representatives more women approach them and talk to them about their problems as you can see in the villages and cities of india today um women feel much more comfortable talking to other women about whatever problems they may be facing whether it is alcoholism uh, domestic violence um whether it's a lack of access to sanitation or sanitary napkins than to a male elected representative so the fact that 50% of the population doesn't have the voice that it should rightly have to air its problems means that the right problems aren't even being heard at the levels that it should and therefore they cannot be addressed and uh, with that i'd like to say thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and i hope it's uh, it's useful Thank you Tara thank you so much Thank you and all the best hope to see a lot of young people and a lot of women rule